Lighting good. Nothing crazy in the background. Okay, record. So here we are again, my fifth annual end of the year summary to those of you who painfully watch me reflect at the end of each year on my personal life, current affairs, the world, basically anything that needs covering, the good, the bad, plenty of ugly. I figured I'd get this mess out of the way before Christmas. So can we just hit reset in 2020? I check that, not a do-over. Can we just forget it ever happened? I remember all the excitement back in January, all the clever sayings like seeing new in 2020. And we barely made it past Valentine's before that love fest ended. The pandemic hits, the world shuts down. We ran out of toilet paper. Work, school, church, basically everything goes online and we all scramble to figure out a new normal until we can get back to normal, slowly realizing there is no going back to normal. Lots of fear, lots of testing, lots of loss, lots of division, chaos, riots, people taking sides on everything, masks, politics, diversity, conspiracies, news from all angles, but you're never quite sure what to believe. And if you say anything to anyone about any topic, you get corrected or ridiculed or, or sometimes just canceled altogether. I mean, the whole thing has become one big dumpster fire. Everyone quarantined. Families forced to spend lots of time together, which at first was a good thing. Until it was too much of a good thing. At some point, we all felt stuck in an endless loop of Groundhog Day. <laughs> I loved working from home, was... Grateful I could work from home. Then I slipped into a funk. My performance dropped. Perfectly timed with company cutbacks. Now in my 50s, no job, no severance, two kids in college and a mountain of debt. And not exactly a ton of job opportunities at my age during a global pandemic. Stress feeds into marriage. A little intimacy we had is now gone. I don't fight, we don't argue. I don't laugh. I don't do anything, really. So here I am, late in life, marriage falling apart, career and finances in shambles, kids glad to be stuck away at college, mom and dad long gone, what few friends I have are too busy or too distracted. Basically everywhere I look, my world is a disaster. And if life is about keeping score, well, I have definitely ended up in the loser's bracket. But hey, tis the season of good cheer, right? 
Hope has come down, joy to the world. Light a candle to new life, new slate, new beginnings. It's the most wonderful time of next year. Oh, come. Let us believe, receive, be more. Adore. And upload and post. Disable comments. So each Sunday you've been hearing from a different voice, from a different one of the artists of our body that are presenting to you, we think some pretty honest and resonant voices with what this year has brought our way. It's the experience of so many. And like you just heard in that monologue, there is so much that we have to do that we don't have the luxury of being to give up to do, but which we've perhaps lost a lot of the enthusiasm to do so. That what usually came easy for us, or what we are inspired to do, we now find a lot more difficult to do. And that's just true of so many things. And that is also probably true of what it means to follow Jesus in this season. Uh, we know what he calls us to. We know he has a right to call us to whatever he would. But who he is to us and what he asks of us is more than just giving us a command, though he does give us commands. He also has given us a desire to follow them. And that desire is what we've discussed the last few weeks as the desire that is adoration. That love for him, that cherishing of him, that leads us to want to do for him in ways that only he can ask of us. And that's why each week we've been listening to a different text in which at least one person, by the time we're through, is committing themselves in adoration in a way that's as clear and plain as day, and that is by bowing before him, whether it's literally or figuratively. The carol says, Oh, come, let us adore him. And each week that we sing that song or even say that line, we are always asking ourselves, Why is that true? Why is he worthy of adoration, and, and how do we do it? Especially when we're not ensure that the spirit is willing, because we surely know that the flesh is weak. We're going to look at another familiar text this week in which somebody ends up bowing before we're done. And we're going to give our mind to at least three reasons why he's worthy of adoration. We have to think on those things, because adoration of him does not come naturally, and not without his assistance, but, not also, but also not without our reflection. And so we're going to look deeply into a familiar text and hopefully recover a little bit why he is worthy of our adoration. Three reasons, all of which speak to our deepest needs. We're in Luke chapter 7, and we're starting in verse 36. Our central text for today is found in Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, whom she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So for all that we're facing in this long season, this is still a season of Advent in which food is at a premium. Food is a pretty prominent feature of our experience right here. And so we are familiar with savoring food, savoring good food during holidays. And savoring is in many ways not so dissimilar from the idea of adoring. You adore food, you savor it. It's no surprise then that we might have something to learn about adoration from Jesus while he's at a dinner party. And this one, as you found out, is at a dinner party and it's hosted by a Pharisee named Simon back early in Jesus's ministry when Pharisees were still inviting Jesus to dinner rather than kicking him out of town. He's hosting it, but before things get too far in the party, up comes this party crasher. And she is not there to crash the party to to sample the hummus and and sip the wine selection. In fact, she hits the room and everybody that is eating at that point is about to choke on their food because they know full well that she was never invited to this party on the basis of her background. We don't know anything about her backstory. We, We don't know anything about her history or whatever interactions that she may have had with Jesus. All we know is the way she is referred to, and Luke does a good job of referring to her in the most inoffensive way he can. This woman is of that oldest profession, and I don't mean accountant. She's a family show, got a mouth like that. It's what she is, and that's what she's done, and she has come for one reason. She has come to adore Jesus, to lay at his feet, and to give thanks for him and to adore him. At first, she's standing behind him. The 
way you would eat in that scenario, if you remember of a, a Palestinian first century setting, the tables were low to the ground, there were no chairs, there were pillows, you'd recline on them, your face would aim towards the, the table, your foot would be, feet would be sticking out back away from the other direction. She's standing behind him at first, but by the time things are done, she has come to her knees and she has begun to open up an expensive vial of ointment and she has begun to anoint his feet with oil and not only with her tears but also with her hair and for her to do that with her hair she had to have let down her hair which in that culture and in that moment would have signified the one thing that you did in the most intimate of settings and so anybody that was already had their eyes wide about this uninvited guest would now have their mouths way open at what she was doing and why she was willing to do it but you know what she doesn't care she doesn't care what attention she draws. She doesn't care what kind of revulsion the people are thinking about her. This is her moment, and she has come to share it with him. And in that moment, Simon, the Pharisee, is sort of the mouthpiece for the whole room. Because beneath his breath, he is beginning to murmur, does Jesus not know who and what sort of woman this is? I mean, within moments, he's already begun to categorize her according to her background. That's it. She's a category now. Nothing more. And, and in that moment, in the tension of the room and the tears upon her face, we find the first reason why anyone would want to adore Jesus, why you would want to adore Jesus, why I would want to adore Jesus. It has everything to do with how Jesus responds to her. How he responds to how both she and he acknowledge her unrighteousness. The things she knows she's done wrong for which she has regret and in part why she sheds her tears in his presence. What we realize about that in that moment is that Jesus Inasmuch as she is weeping and anointing her feet, she is not in any way not taking responsibility for what she's done. She's not in, in so many words without saying a word, saying, I didn't do it, or they just didn't understand me, or, you know, it never would have happened if this hadn't happened. She's not trying to evade responsibility for what she is regretful of. And in that same moment, Jesus is also not out to, to mitigate what has happened or what she's come to to express unto him, she, he says in his many words, her sins, which are many. He doesn't try to set those aside. He doesn't try to pretend that those aren't true. He acknowledges them. But what else? Why else would she be seeking his forgiveness? Why else would she be out to adore him? The reason that she adores Jesus is because Jesus is not treating her sins as they deserve. And therefore, Jesus sees her not as a category uh, reduced unto a, unto a title or unto a, unto a way of being. He, he doesn't reduce her. He sees her as she is. He sees her as one who was made in the image of God. And that's what he says to Simon. Simon, do you see her? Do you see her? Do you see her in her fullness rather than in reducing her to some sort of category? Do you see her? This is how he sees her. He sees her as she is, and that is why we adore him. How he responds to her is why we adore him. We adore him because of how he responds to our unrighteousness. 
you and I, if we are ever caught red-handed, if we are caught dead to rights, if we have blown it in some big way, when those moments like that, we're faced with temptations. And, and one of those temptations is to try to deny it, to rationalize it, to justify it, to say, look, it's not a big deal, or it really isn't that bad, or, you know, I was just having a hard day, or if, or if these other set of circumstances hadn't been true, or if you hadn't done what you did, I never would have done what I did. All of those ways we look to try to, to, to set them aside and to evade the responsibility for it, and, and yet there is no denying it. And, and Jesus would not have us deny it because he realizes that that which we're out to deny, the more we deny it, the more we let it hold us in its own slavery. The woman is not denying anything in the moment. She's fully owning, fully regretting and remorseful about what she's done. But, but Jesus is there to say to you, look, that which you have given yourself to for so long, it will kill you if you retain it and persist in it. And that is one temptation we face. And that is why we look to him for a face of love and a face of honesty and quite candor. That's one temptation we face when it comes to our unrighteousness. The other is somewhat different, and that is not to deny what we've done, but actually to despise ourselves, to crawl into a hole, and to think that we could never emerge from it. In that moment, she is not wondering how he thinks of her. In fact, in that moment, there is no sense of her that she is being self-deprecating. Why else would she be so vulnerable? Why else would she be so forthright with him? Why else would she be so self-forgetful if she expected from him scorn? She wouldn't have done any of those things. She's fully transparent before him. And she doesn't care what anybody else thinks in the room. Um, 20 years into marriage, I know this may be a shock to you, but I have sinned against my wife in thought, word, and deed, sometimes in omission and sometimes in commission. And in more instances than I can count, what are most memorable over those 20 years is how my wife showed unto me not the face of scorn, but the face of love. In the face of my unrighteousness, she was a little picture of the way Jesus responds to us in full in our unrighteousness. She neither sought to minimize what I had done or rationalize what I had done, but neither had she sought to weaponize what I had done either for her own ends. And that's a little picture of what it means to look at Jesus in his face and to realize that when you have blown it, when you know you have blown it, and you know it, and you begin to find remorse for it, then you understand what it would be like to face when my wife looks upon me in love in the midst of my unrighteousness. And how could that not endear her to me in such that I would want to have affection for her and adoration for her? That's the picture of we have in Jesus. It's why we adore him. For how he responds to her and her unrighteousness and how he responds to us in our unrighteousness. Look, it might be an oversimplification, but the way you can understand the kind of face that you would see in Jesus in the face of your unrighteousness. It goes something like this. You've probably heard this little meme out there that says this. Um, there's a way of thinking of God that comes like this. Uh, you call your dad, you really screwed up, and you go, man, I've messed up. Dad is going to kill me. 
contrast that with another way of thinking about the same scenario in which you say, oh man, I really messed up. I got to call dad. Two very different ways of thinking of the one whom you love, um, in whose submission you find yourself, and who has a certain call upon you like no one else does, but has, but both of those little sentences have vastly different understandings of who your father is like. We're to understand our father as being able to call him and say, I have messed up and I need to call you. The one reason, or one reason why we adore Jesus is how he looks at us in our face in the midst of our unrighteousness. It's not the only reason we adore him. And she, while a prominent figure in the story, is not the only figure in the story. There is another prominent figure in the story, and that would be the Pharisee. And we have as much to learn about adoration from the way Jesus responds to him as we do and how he responds to this woman who has come to adore him with her tears. Simon is at first this greatly hospitable host, and for that day he probably demonstrated a great, you know, uh, example of real progressive thinking. He's, he's let this person without many credentials and who has sort of, sort of begun to shake up things, this sort of thought leader, up and coming thought leader like Jesus, let him come into his place. And he's just sort of being this really inclusivist kind of personality. And then by the end of the story, Pharisee Simon has kind of shown his true colors. He is a mouthpiece for the whole room, like we've said before, and he's murmuring beneath his breath that he looks upon this woman with a certain amount of scorn. But even as we think about the way he might scorn her, can you blame him? At one level, can you blame him, right? This man is a Pharisee. He knows the law. He, he's, he's been given the oracles of God. He is uh, intimately aware of what God calls from anybody that would come to follow him. And so he knows all about the law and about sin and about righteousness. And if he's a Pharisee, he also knows about Israel's history. And Israel's history is this sordid tale of a nation on more than a billion occasions deciding that they know better than God and following their own way. And every time they do, it costs them. And so he values righteousness at some level. That's why he's a Pharisee. That's why he'd be respected. That's why Jesus would even give him the time of day because he believes that the Pharisee has some interest in what righteousness is. So you can't blame him in some ways the way he's acting like he does. In fact, in our day, you might even say the way of the Pharisee has sort of come back into vogue. Now, anytime you have a problem with somebody, you silence them, you cancel them, you kick them out, and you say, that's the righteous thing to do. That's the just thing to do. Isn't it ironic? But here in this moment, this Pharisee, who, who would understandably have a great um, set of reasons why he might want to keep clear of someone that would lead them astray, who, why he might think um, uh, with difficulty about someone who has crashed the party as he does, the irony of it is this, among others. Simon thinks that Jesus has really dropped the ball here and has really demonstrated that he doesn't know much about anything. In fact, those people that thought Jesus might have been a prophet now would need to, you know, have that thesis challenge because surely, Simon thinks, surely he thinks that Jesus would know that this woman, who she is. And the irony of it is, is Jesus can read Simon's mind because Simon's not even saying what he's thinking. That's one irony. The greater irony is this. Jesus is not out to be ironic. In fact, he has another intention. And he has intention for Simon in that moment. And what is that intention? Is it, is it to put him in his place? 
You know, wouldn't it be understandable if, you know, Jesus certainly interrupts him, he, he speaks a parable to him, he, he defends this woman uh, to him, and then contrasts her with him, and she's even, he even puts her up as an example of love in ways that Simon never was, and so you think maybe Jesus is just out to scorn him, to, to, to put him, to make him eat a, you know, a good, hample, a good um, helping of, of humble pie. But why doesn't Jesus just sort of get up and say, I'm done with this party? Why doesn't he just sort of look uh, Pharise the Pharisee in the eye, Simon in the eye, and just sort of you know, dress him down with everything that he can? Why does he act in that way? In fact, why does he even go to the trouble of telling Simon a parable? It's because Jesus has a bigger, um, he's got a bigger goal in his mind. And it's not just to dress Simon down. See, this woman, she receives greater than what her sins deserve. But when it comes to Simon, Simon receives from Jesus something greater than what we think Simon deserves. We think he deserves nothing but shame and but scorn and but Jesus has something else for him and that that is why Simon might have at the end of the day and the end of the party come to respect and appreciate Jesus but I think brothers and sisters and those who are listening from wherever whoever knows where that's another reason why we adore Jesus when we come at it from the perspective of this woman we adore him for the way he responds to us and our unrighteousness but when we think of it from Simon's point of view we adore Jesus for how he responds to us in our self-righteousness and we're really good at that C.S. Lewis's book Mere Christianity uh, first time I read it was in college and it was a uh, it was a game changer for me um, the one chapter that stuck with me the longest time from that book comes about two-thirds of the way in, and it's the chapter entitled, The Great Sin, and I was looking forward to what that might be and why I might not be guilty of it, only to find that I was guilty of it all the time. What is that great sin? You know, he puts it this way. He says, it's the vice of which no man in the world is free, of which hardly any ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. He says, it leads to every other vice, it's the chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. And then he goes on to say it's a spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Good Lord, Clive, what is the great sin? You know what it is. It's pride. Pride, as he goes on to clarify, not the, not the sort of admiration that you might have for your children if they do something well. Not the sort of admiration you might have for a team that you're on or for the country when it does something right or for somebody that you have great respect for who acts in a certain way of great nobility. You can have pride in them and that's not a problem. This is the pride that, as he elsewhere puts it, is the looking down on things and people which, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Jesus has caught Simon in the act of looking downward upon this woman with scorn so fixatedly that he is not aware of the one who is looking at him who is above him. That's pride. And that's the danger that we're all facing. And what, what Jesus does in that moment in responding to his unrighteousness is that he is out to confront Simon in his self-righteousness to clarify for him what is the heart of God. 
He has a bigger fish to fry than to simply, you know, chastise Simon for what he's done, even though he does that in the moment. It is reminiscent of what we know from Jesus' other parable, the parable of the two sons, in which the younger son goes off to waste his father's inheritance. He comes back in his own quasi-repentance, and he shows up, and the older son is just fit to be tied that his father is demonstrating to him a kind of mercy and grace that this older son doesn't think that his younger brother deserves. But Jesus, even in that parable, is doing the same thing here in this moment. He is trying to communicate to one who knows so much about righteousness that he has fallen prey to this thing called self-righteousness. Simon thinks that he is greater than this woman, and he is not. And he has responded to Jesus at first. You're not sure if, if Simon's respect is really for Jesus or for how it makes him look good to have invited Jesus into his house. And so therefore, how he's dealing with the woman and how he might be also dealing with Jesus catches him red-handed about what it means to be self-righteous. That's pride. But, but Jesus in that moment is not simply to say, stop it. Don't do that. He's, he's not just there to put him in his place. Jesus wants to set him free from that self-righteousness. Jesus wants to, to liberate him and expose his self-righteousness so that he might know him. That he might be humbled in it and therefore freed from the incessant attempt to prove that he is something. And that should sound rather familiar to us. Because look, it's a challenge these days. Um, whenever you properly call somebody out for something that you think that might be wrong, you're immediately charged with the with the indictment of being self-righteous. Who are you to say anything, right? Which is another great irony, right? Because there's all sorts of people claiming everybody is, you know, the worst thing since uh, the Nazi party. But whenever you start calling somebody out on some things, you're immediately charged with being self-righteous. So here's the thing. How do you, in a world like this, value righteousness, value what is good and true and noble and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy without succumbing to self-righteousness? Let's listen to C.S. Lewis once more, because there's a test, he says. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object it's better to forget about yourself altogether. Simon was thinking of himself as superior to the woman. Simon was thinking of himself as a rather cool, uh, a cool cat for inviting Jesus into his presence. But Jesus is out to show him not just that he's wrong, but how he's wrong about the very heart of God. And that God responds to the unrighteous with the same kind of love that he faces those who are being self-righteous. And the way that you and I perhaps struggle most with our self-righteousness is that we are always trying to prove that we are something, that we matter, that we're important. And we stick our heads where they do not belong and sometimes speak is only to be heard and noted and appreciated and therefore we are on this incessant treadmill to prove that we matter. And that is just one variation of what it means to be full of pride, to be so full of self that we can't let it go. 
And Jesus is out to say unto us, you can let that go. Oh, you can let that go. And the sooner you do, the more relieved you will be. We adore him for how he responds to us in our unrighteousness. We also adore him for how he responds to us in our self-righteousness. But look, just because he's in the room doing the things he's done and saying the things he said, that doesn't mean he has any authority to do so. Like, why would she have any confidence to believe that he, she is forgiven? Why, why would Simon have any reason to respect the perspective that Jesus brings against his understanding of his own self-righteousness? Where does that come from? That leads us to the last reason we have to adore him. So far, most of the attention has been given to what Jesus has said and what he has done. But by the end of it here, everybody's talking about, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Uh, Simon has murmured under his breath, maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's not. Uh, when Jesus says, let me tell you a parable, Simon addresses him as a teacher. But by the end of the story here, around the table, everybody's beginning to say, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. This man claims that he can forgive sins. In saying to the woman, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Look, uh, you don't say that if you're a prophet. You can't say that if you're a teacher. You can't even say that if you're a priest because it's not the priest that forgives you. It's the confidence about what God has said that the priest can say to you. So for Jesus to say what he says, that's to say something big. If I drive to Raleigh tomorrow and I walk into the Capitol and I start announcing to everybody with an earshot that I am the governor, at first, people are going to start to chuckle. But if I keep saying that, eventually somebody's going to go, hey man, call security. Because... I ain't him, and I don't have the authority to ascribe that to myself. I don't have that authority. And that sounds nutso, right? But it is nothing compared to what Jesus is saying here about being able to forgive sins. Because that's something that only God could do. That's something only God could pronounce. And so for Jesus to say what he says, that's the reason that you look there and you go, well, okay, this is something else. And that's why the other reason... The most important reason, the one reason that grounds all other reasons to adore him is the way he responds to us in our need of his righteousness. Look, the reason we ever fall into unrighteousness or the reason we're ever seduced by self-righteousness is because they give off something that seems pretty attractive. Seems pretty bright and luminous like the lovely stars above our head. But when you come to see his righteousness in view of unrighteousness and self-righteousness, those things feel like, you know, a firecracker in a large fireworks display. It's nothing. When we see him as he is and how he responds to us in our need of his righteousness, we have another reason and the most important reason why we adore him. His righteousness, to see him as he is, to love him as he loves, to act in accordance with righteousness as he does. That is to value him like nothing else. And that is why Jesus, what he does for us, he does more for us than just tell us a parable. Uh, he does more for us than maybe defend our honor before others. He does more for us than just declare us forgiven. He dies to make it so. He extends himself and expends himself to give us his righteousness. That is what we call the gospel. That is the thing that, that brings us into this room or wherever we are every single week to be reminded of that because we forget. And every time we forget, we are 
perilously closer to walking in what is unrighteous or dabbling in what is self-righteousness. To believe that we have his righteousness is to believe this, that we are seen by God as God sees his very own son. That's to have his righteousness. And that's what he does to give it to us. Thomas Merton, he was a, a monk that lived in Kentucky, and he made this rather sobering claim. He said, the real reason why so few men believe in God is that they have ceased to believe that even God can love them. You cannot look at the cross. You cannot look at the way he responds to this woman's unrighteousness and this Pharisee's self-righteousness. You cannot see any of that within your view and not believe that his love is real and that that love is powerful. Love that takes its guidance and its grace from some other place and it takes any thought of you deserving something out of your hands. We are in a world in which everything is about what you deserve or what you don't deserve. And the name of the gospel, the essence of the gospel, is that it takes us to a place beyond deserving. Deserving is out of the picture now. Such that Eugene Peterson, he kind of summarized it this way. You think religion is a matter of knowing things and doing things. It's not. It is a matter of letting God do something for you, letting him love you, letting him save you, letting him bless you, letting him command you. Friends, not only are we in need of something to remind us why we do what we do, why we follow him as he calls us, we're going to need to adore him and rediscover how to adore him for another reason. One of you said to me recently, I thought was a rather wise and astute observation, that when, when these days are past, when the thing that is not foremost in our mind is something about this thing called a virus, the need for forgiveness is going to probably be very great, both to seek it and to grant it. Because in seasons of duress like what we have all faced, it is not uncommon to see some of the worst of us rise to the surface, myself included. And their forgiveness will be at a great premium. And as surely as forgiveness was essential to this moment, show it will probably have to be central to many of our moments, if not now, eventually. Where will we find the resources to seek forgiveness where we perhaps are afraid to acknowledge our problem? Where will we find the resources to begin the process of forgiveness where we'll need to. We find it here, in this moment, in which we recover our reasons to adore him. Because when we are honest with ourselves and the number of ways we've been unrighteous, and when we're honest with ourselves about the number of ways in which we give in to self-righteousness, then we're gonna need a reminder of what he did for our sake to give us his righteousness. And then forgiveness might actually be possible because surely it will be necessary. Brothers and sisters, the gospel moves us to a place beyond deserving. And that's why we adore him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.